we've been doing this series on conflict and how how does conflict work and what do we do in it and how do we tend to respond and this morning the 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 idea is that in the midst of conflict and disagreements and tension we need to get to the higher ground gospel we see things from our perspective we see things at our level right we see the uh, the sins and the wrongs and the we hear the words and everything what we need to do is is get a better perspective from one who can see all things who sees into our hearts and minds we have such limited sight and and the gospel is the picture of things from god's viewpoint the gospel maybe you heard that word it's a word we throw around a lot in church right but what it means it's it's the message about jesus the message that Jesus came, the Son of God came to seek and save people like us. He came after us. Though we deserve one thing, he came to give us something so much better. And that that salvation that we desperately need is received as a gift. We receive for gifts that we did not deserve. That can change everything. And it does change everything in our lives, not just going to heaven someday. It's a salvation that works all throughout our life. So we started watching a new show, and um, maybe you've seen it. It's actually the number one show on Netflix right now. I'm not necessarily recommending you do, especially if you have kids. It's, it's, It's violent, what you'll hear when I describe the show. But as I'm watching it and I'm reflecting on the stuff, it, it keeps coming back. It's about people who are in deep, deep debt. Desperately, uh, uh, they're desperate. They're in ridiculously high debt that they will never be able to pay. And they're desperate because they're, the, the loan sharks are, are threatening them or the government's about to arrest them. Um, it's a Korean show, by the way, and it's, it's kind of has dubbed in subtitles, which, which actually makes me pay attention more. Um, but... In the show, they're invited to play on this, this series of games where they can win money, lots of money. And best of all, it's children's games. In fact, the first game is red light, green light. Remember doing that one? You know, red light, you, you stop. And, um, and, and so they're on this, they can win enough money. And they're, but the problem is if you are eliminated in the game, you are eliminated They have snipers that enforce the rules. If you lose the game, you're out, meaning you're out of everything. And in fact, they set it up that the more people who die, the more you will win. And why I point out the show is that what what you see what happens when people are are in the situation, they're all in it for themselves. They're focused on getting rid, paying off their debt. And they are, are cutthroat, and there's, there's no compassion for each other. Everyone's trying to get, you know, get their thing. In fact, there's actually one rare act of, of compassion, and it sticks out because everything else is um, in-it-for-yourself attitude. And what I would suggest is the Squid Game show is a picture of life without grace. Life without grace, where 
all we're thinking about is what we owe, our debt, and how we can, we can get out of it. And how does that lead us to treat one another? Jesus told a parable of the other per- perspective. How can grace, how can God's grace in our life change everything and how we treat others? So we're going to look at a question and a parable this morning. The question came uh, by the Apostle Peter in response. He's one of the 12 apostles. And it came in response to what we talked about last week. Do you remember last week? So it's if your brother has wronged you, your brother or sister has done you wrong, what are you supposed to do? Well, you're not supposed to just go talk about that with everyone else, right, and gossip behind their back. You're supposed to go to them. You know, if your brother has done wrong, if they've sinned, go to them in private, alone, and try to work it out. Seek, seek reconciliation. And Jesus says, if, if, they're, if they receive you, you've won back your brother. Like, that's the goal. And so that's what we talked about last week, how to, instead of going attacking people or running away from difficult situations, we're to, to go to one another and seek that kind of reconciliation and peace in our relationships. So some of you had questions. Um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Jessica and I meet on Tuesdays, and we record a conversation where we, we kind of go through all the questions, uh, we, and we put them out. It's actually, you can find it on YouTube or Spotify. We try to send out links, but, you know, maybe if you hear something I'm sharing on Sunday morning and a question pops your mind, write it down, get it to Jessica, and she can ask it on Tuesday night because we, we'd love to, love to kind of include more people in that conversation, thinking things deeper. But when Peter heard what Jesus said, what we talked about last week, he had a question. And so he goes up, goes up to Jesus. So Jesus, I have a question. If, if my brother does me wrong, if he wrongs me, how many times do I really have to forgive him? Exactly how many times do I have to forgive my brother if he's done me wrong? Um, and then, then he gives a number. He says, up to seven times, which was actually a rather generous number. The rabbis of Jesus' time said three was the number of times you should forgive your brother. So Peter's thinking Jesus is a forgiving guy. He probably wants to take that up to seven. And Jesus' response is, is, no, not seven, 70 times seven. The Bible people debate whether it's 77 or 70 times seven. I, I think it's 70 times seven. Which, any math people here, 70 times seven? 490, yeah, got it. Um, so lots. So what Jesus is telling Peter is, you know, you got to forgive him, but make sure you keep track and you get a list and when they hit 490, then cut them off. You just got to be better at counting. No, he's not saying be better at counting. In fact, he's saying stop counting. Stop keeping track. Stop keeping a list of rights and wrongs. Because it says God keeps no, no record of right and wrongs for us when we've received his forgiveness. So it's a pretty radical teaching, Right? As often as your brother is willing to, to repent and, and, and seek forgiveness, you need to forgive him, your brother or sister. And to help him understand it and why, 
Jesus tells a parable to drive home the teaching. And it's, it's a great parable. Um, Eric read it earlier. It's about a king who's settling accounts. And he's, he's bringing his servants, and one servant owes 10,000 talents. Does that sound like a lot of money? It is a ridiculous amount of money. Jesus is not being subtle. Um, 10,000 talents, a talent is a small bag of gold. It is, um, it, it's a number. I used to say, I said it's, I used to say it's a number approaching the U.S. national debt. I don't think I could say that anymore. It's not that high. I mean, it's up there, but um, our debt is getting a little out of control. Uh, but, but he comes back and the servant, you know, in these, the way they handled debt back then, well, they would sell you into slavery, sell you, and he would sell his whole family. It's horrible. That's just, that's the way it was. And the guy pleads with the king, with the master, please don't do this. Please be patient with me, and I will pay you back everything. Yeah, right. There's no way he could ever pay back that amount of money. That's what Jesus is is telling us. That's why it's so large. And so what does the, the king do? He says he cancels the debt. It's an amazing phrase, and, and one we're going we're gonna to come back to. He gives the servant more than he even asks for. Not just patience. He cancels the whole debt. But the point of the parable is what happens next. That servant goes and finds another servant, another schlub, who owes him a hundred denarii, a hundred silver coins. And he says the same exact words. Be patient with me, and I will pay you back everything. The same exact phrase the one servant had used with the master, this servant now uses with him. And instead of forgiving, though, he says no, and he has the uh, he threatens and beats and has this guy thrown into debtor's prison. The word gets back to the master, who is disturbed. Everyone's disturbed by how the the unforgiving servant handled this, and he brings him up and says, "I canceled your immense debt. How could you not forgive your fellow servant?" It's the incongruity of one who has received such a great mercy refusing themselves to be merciful. And so, it, it's, um, and so the, the master then throws him into to, to prison and you know, says, you know, this is not the way it should be. What is Jesus doing? He's using money as a metaphor. It's not about how you handle your financial system as a nation. Not a no, it's about debt as a metaphor for relational debt. It's, um, it's something we do all the time, right? You, you know, I'll do this favor for me, but you owe me one, right? Or, oh, I will pay you back for what you did. Or we even have the Lord's Prayer, forgive your debts as we forgive our debtors. It's, it's this idea of money as a relational, a metaphor for relational debt that that we accrue things that we owe to one another in our interactions. And here's the gospel in this parable. God has canceled the debt against us. There was a price. In the parable, the master is out 10,000 talents. 
Likewise, God paid the cost for our forgiveness when Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for all sins, every sins. He came, God gave him. It says, for God so loved the people of this world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Right? So Jesus paid that relational debt we owed to God because of our sinfulness, because of our, the ways we've been hostile to God and wronged God. Because of all that, Jesus paid it so that we can have salvation. Jesus said, um, I did not come to be served. Instead, I came to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many to pay that debt. That is the message of the gospel. The, 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 in Christ, our debt is canceled. In Colossians 2, talks about how we, had, we were spiritually dead and distant from God because of our, our behavior. And then it says, but God made us alive together with Jesus. Just as he raised Jesus from the dead, he made us spiritually alive again, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Notice that, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. That relational debt that we owe to God has been canceled. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. The cross is how we know that the debt has already been paid. And God is, you know, doesn't say, well, you get your life in order, and this is what I'll give you. Instead, he says, he doesn't wait for us to get our, our life in order. He doesn't wait to see if, he, if we're good enough. He, if, if we turn in faith, if we come to him, and, and ask, he grants us forgiveness. It says in Titus 3, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy or his grace. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Notice that he, the Holy Spirit is God's presence within us. He comes and he restores the relationship. By living within us. God does not hold against us the wrongs we have done. Not only forgives us, but comes into our life. That's how he treats us. He's the king, and we are the forgiven servant. How then do we respond to others? How does the gospel affect our relationships? If we have been forgiven so much, how can we not forgive those around us? So, I'm basing a lot of this message off the Peacemaker training video. And you're not getting to see that because I'm doing, sort of taking the content and delivering it this way. Um, but I, maybe some of you have seen it before. He actually gets one thing wrong in it. In the video, uh, the speaker, who's a, a, a nice British guy, has a nice, fun accent, British accent. Um, he says, oh, the second servant owed him something like $17. No, that's, that's not right, actually. A um, hundred denarii, a, denari, a denarius, silver coin. A denarius was a day's wage, right? It's what you would earn by working a day. So a hundred denarii is about three months' wages. Think of it that way. What would that translate into your life? I mean, we're talking... $10,000. That is not insignificant. I think Jesus chose the numbers in his parable 
to make a point. He chose the ridiculously high 10,000 talents to say that our debt to God is unpayable. We may think we're decent people, you know, say, oh, all people are basically good, but, but we are so distant from the goodness and grace of God that it is, it is a debt we can never pay. And he chose the hundred denarii for a reason as well. Our debts to one another don't feel insignificant. Now, compared to the 10,000 talents, it's, it's nothing, right? In, in comparison to what God has forgiven us, it is nothing. But in the moment, it feels significant. We can see it. You know, what you said hurt me. What you did made us look bad. Your words affected my reputation. Your actions could sink this company. What you did may end this marriage. I don't know if I'll ever see you the same again. Right? That's the hundred denarii, right? Those are the kind of things, the conflicts that we feel. And to forgive that is not easy unless we know and are convinced God has forgiven us far more. Unless we remember he has canceled our debt first. You are not asked to forgive anything that God has not forgiven far greater on your behalf. Even the most evil things in this world, rape or murder or genocide, and they are true evils. Remember that it was even those evil things can find forgiveness because it was paid for by the brutal death of the Son of God on a Roman cross. That's how seriously God takes those evils. And know this also. God will not let evil win. Right? He's offering forgiveness to those who are willing to own up and turn away from evil. But he will not let evil win in the end. He will deal with all of those things. So we can forgive and trust that God will deal with the evildoers in his his good time. Getting to the higher ground of the gospel amidst our conflicts is not easy. But it's our calling. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And we got to keep that truth central of his forgiveness and mercy to us. The, the verse where it says, um, you know, do it all for God's glory is in the letter of the first Corinthians. Corinth, the church in Corinth, was probably the most conflict-ridden of the, the early churches. Paul had to write two really long letters to this one church. There's so much weird stuff going on. They, there's a lot of conflicts, there's flight, fights and quarrels, there's lawsuits, there's people complaining about one another. Everyone was doing what was right for them and not considering others. And there probably wasn't even that many people in this church. So scholars think it may have only been 40 people, right? Like that's, that's almost like a, a small group or two compared to a church. But uh, Paul even says at one point, he says, I'm not going to praise you for your meetings when you get together. In fact, your meetings do more harm than good. So, the, so Paul's not writing this to pristine people. He's writing to people who are struggling with conflict and all kinds of stuff. And there's this, this picture that Peacemakers gives of, of a horizontal heart, right? 
we tend to deal with people on this horizontal level where we're looking at them and, and we're in, trying to deal with these interactions um, horizontally through people. So in other words, we're, we're hurt, so we blame. And we blame, so we feel hurt. And it becomes the cycle that feeds back. Both parties look at each other and see the other party at fault. We see them as accruing relational debt to us. They see us as accruing relational debt to them. And as long as we stay horizontal, there's no solution to that. Both parties are going to stay over here and say, well, you owe me this. Well, you owe me this. Unless we go vertical. Unless we get out of the horizontal framework and turn to a source that is above and beyond us. Unless we go to higher ground. And we begin to say, how can, in whatever's going on here, how can I bring glory to God? How can God speak into this situation? And, and ideally, both parties would do that, and it would bring them back. Um, one of the questions I, I've been asked, and it is harder when one party says no, we're still called to, even if the other party won't deal with us that way, we as believers in Christ are still called to go vertical. We do not let their their response determined for us how we will respond. Our response is determined by him. They may be basing their response horizontally. We are called to go vertical, to go to higher ground. There's a, um, a little exercise for those who are doing the workbooks and the discussion groups. Uh, I'll, I'll just mention it, but it's an interesting exercise that uh, hopefully you'll do when you go through this. It's a, a situation where the uh, uh, husband and wife both had long, hard days at work, and the husband gets home, and and his wife is there, and she's you know belatedly trying to get dinner ready, and you know didn't have it all set up or whatever, and and so the question is, what responses would be helpful, and what responses would make things worse? Any thoughts on, you know, on that? Well, I, we could call out different ones. Um, but so that, that's your workbook discussion. Uh, but, it, but it highlights a key thing. It's called the moment. In everything that, where there's a, a battle, there's a moment, right? That, it's, a, it's that trigger moment that, that we can either say something that will trigger further conflict or say something that will, that will calm things down. And you could probably feel that building in, in the midst of it. And so we have a choice then. Do we pull out a fire extinguisher and, and calm down the fire? Or do we light a grenade and just toss it in? You know, well, you did this to me. You know, well, and you never take out the garbage. You know, and, and then what things will build that up in that moment? Proverbs 15 One says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. How do we learn to take those moments and and bring out the fire extinguisher? That's, I mean, God's still working on me on that, and I'm sure he's working on all of us. How do we avoid pulling the pin on the grenade and instead learn to have our words be a fire extinguisher in those moments.
So in the Peacemaker video, the, the British guy tells a great story about this. He talks about a moment where he failed and it led to conflict. And it has to do with his father's logbook. His father was in uh, a British pilot in World War II and did a lot of bombing raids. And he had this uh, memorabilia of his father's logbook of his flights where he, he did this and his you know, family treasured possession. Well, his father had handed it down to him. And he had moved to America. His older brother back in England um, was there. And, and so after the father's funeral, a conflict arises. His older brother back in England wanted the logbook. And he says, well, you know, the, fa- the war memorial is, is rightfully to the oldest son. You know, had, had some reason. And, and his, his, he says this is where he failed the moment. His initial response is, well, dad gave it to me, you know. Like that conflict, the res- they had to resolve the issue. And so it was a lot of tension. And the speaker, of course, works for Peacemaker Ministries. And he says one of the problems with working for Peacemaker Ministries is you can't carry on very long without someone calling you on it. And so he, he ends up having a conversation with the, the guy who wrote the Peacemaker book, Ken Sandy. I don't know if you've ever read it. but So the guy is in charge. And, and Ken Sandy asked, well, what would glorify God in this situation? <sighs> you know, he realized, okay, I'm not handling this. I'm handling this horizontally. And so he prayed. And he thought about it. And he felt the Lord's conviction. And so he decided he would send his brother the logbook. Now, he clarifies, not every conflict is settled this way. You don't always just give over, you know, give up your rights in a resol- thing where something needs resolution. But that was the call he felt, that his brother was more important than, than this logbook. And so he says he mailed it off to England. A couple months later, he gets a package in the mail. And it's, it's a letter from his brother along with the logbook. His brother sent it back to him. And he wrote him a long note and, and here's the words his brother said. It says, in the end, I realized the generosity of sending it to me was far more important than me possessing the book. Even more important than the logbook, the relationship was maintained. Despite being in England and versus America, he was able to stay in the relationship with his brother. So even when we mess up the moment, right? We can still go back and say, honey, I should have never said that. I am so sorry. That was the wrong way thing for me to do, right? Even when we know we've messed up in those things, that we've contributed to the fight where maybe we both have have a part, we can own up to our part in it. Is there anyone you need to, to go say to, I'm sorry for the way I handled that. I was wrong. Would you forgive me? The peace that comes from doing that is worth it. Right? It's never too late to do the right thing. The gospel changes everything. 
the gospel is not just about getting us into eternal life, getting us to heaven. It is about how we respond in everyday life to all these situations. We remember Colossians 1, how God treated us. It says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in your mind toward God, doing bad things, doing evil deeds, right? What did he do? He reconciled to you in his body through through his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So Jesus came to us even when we were hostile in our minds toward God, right? Even when we were alienated from God, when we weren't willing to listen to him. So that, that verse is talking about humanity's pose towards God. It's talking big picture, right? Is when humanity was hostile toward God, God did not let us just go on our own. He came to us through sending his son of God into this world. I also believe, though, it's not just big picture. That verse is talking about each and every person. Now, I know those who've grown up in church sometimes struggle with that idea. Because, well, I've never been hostile in my mind towards God. I've never, but you know what? We have been. Even maybe when we're outwardly doing what we're supposed to do, there has been an inner hostility, an inner unwillingness to listen to God at some point. Know this, that whatever our, our alienation from God has looked like, God, through Jesus, came to us. And he came with the attitude of forgiving us, bringing us back to him. And with that same attitude he had towards us, we are called to have it towards other, others. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. The attitude we have towards others is not determined by how they treat us. It's determined by how Christ treated us. That's what it means to be vertical. We don't let them determine how we, how we behave, even the attitudes we have. We let him determine the attitudes we have towards all people. That's how the gospel changes everything. I had a chart they have a chart in the, the workbook, and you'll see this for those who go through it. I put it onto the blue, blue things because I want to get a, just a little specific before we finish today and talk about, well, how does the gospel change things in this situation? And this, this I think, is, is helpful. So, so it gives four conditions. All of these can sort of lead into conflict, right? When I'm fearful of the future, how often... When is conflict come because we're afraid of something, right? We're afraid of what, what will happen, and there's anxiety about it, and that leads us to respond to people in a certain way. But we're fearful for the future, we're concerned by worry, so we assume the worst and we lose hope. But in Christ, we know that God, who did not spare his own son but gave him, gave him up for us all, will give us all that we need. We know that God is our Father, and He will provide for us. We have riches in Christ. What do we need to worry about anything? He can take away our fear. That's how the gospel changes things. What about when I've fallen into sin? Well, in ourselves, in our natural tendency, we're going to cover it up. We're going to hide it. 
we're going to minimize what we did, and we're going to look for someone else. Well, it's really their fault. You know that, don't you? We want to blame them. But in Christ, we know that God delights in forgiving people. And so we don't, we don't need to defend ourselves. We don't need to try to shift blame away because we have, we have forgiveness already. And we know the Lord is our refuge, so we can run to him and find peace in him. We can freely confess our sins and own up to, to where we've fallen short. What about when things are going well? Well, that can lead us to, to pride, take pride in our achievements and look down on others to think we've accomplished the things in our life. But we, in Christ, we know everything we have has been a gift from him. All good gifts are from God. Freely we have received, so we can freely give. And so instead, because of the gospel, I can humbly thank God, and I can gladly share my blessings. And then lastly, when someone wrongs me. Our tendency is to live in bitterness and anger, to fight for our rights, to to be estranged from them, estrangement, to look for payback. But... Because of the gospel, I know I have been forgiven. I've been saved by his mercy upon me, and so I can show mercy, even to those who've done me damage, to those who've hurt me. This is how the gospel can change everything. And, And the thing is, it starts with, I should, right? I should forgive, right? I should um, seek reconciliation. But because of the gospel... Should becomes, I can. I can forgive. It gives me the power. It gives me the inner motivation. And then finally, when the gospel really takes root, it becomes, I want to. I want to forgive. I want to I honor God in all my relationships. So, I was thinking about this and, and working with Nick as we talk about youth group stuff, it's bringing back memories for me. Last week I shared a story from my working with middle school kids. Well, I had another one that came back, and it's just like, oh, wow. And I remembered my first uh, middle school or junior high all-nighter. I was was a youth director at a church, and they had a tradition of of uh, junior high lock-ins. And so, all right, we could do that. We, We didn't have a lot of junior hires coming to Youth group, so I thought maybe we'll have 10 kids. Yeah, um, they, there's the one thing they would invite their friends to. We had 40. I did not have enough leaders or help, um, and it might have been one of the longest nights of my life. They brought friends I didn't know, and they brought little hellions, right? They brought the troublemakers who had no concern for church, and at the end of the night, I just wanted them to go away. I remember calling the pastor at 3 a.m. to find out the code for the fire alarm because they kept pulling that. Um, bad things happened. So, and I just, you know, at the end of the night, I'm like, at 7 a.m., they were supposed to be picked up. There were three kids not yet picked up, and these were the worst of the three. And I'm like, you need to call your mom. You need to call your mom. You know, like, they, they were sort of hanging around, like, have you called your parents yet to come? Well, eventually one of them did, and, and I overheard, and saying, Mom, 
I need you to come pick me up. And I just, I just heard, Mom, please. Like, it, it's over. That I, I don't have any. And he, he had to spend a couple minutes begging his mom to come get him. And I'm like, what's up with that? You know, my mom would have come got me. Like, I wouldn't have had to. And, and that was the one of the three that they seemed most likely to get their mom to come. I'm like, what are these kids like? So that was, started to shift something. And then, thank God, his, his mom came and took all three away. And I'm driving home. Keep in mind, I'm exhausted. Um, but on the Christian radio station, um, a song comes on. And it's, it's, it's the, nothing better than, than 80s and 90s Christian rock. Michael W. Smith. And it's one of my favorite songs. And it talks about Jesus' attitude. And the, the title's called Secret Ambition. And his secret ambition was to give his life for us. And, and this started, and so the verse goes, nobody knew his secret ambition. Nobody knew his claim to fame. He broke the old rules steeped in tradition. He tore the holy veil away, questioning those in powerful position, running to those who called his name. But nobody knew his secret ambition was to give his life away. And my heart melted. And I just, it shifted the way I was thinking of those kids. And I just began praying for them. Praying that God would do a work in their heart. I just spent the rest of my, my trip home praying for these, these kids. I remembered that I was a punk kid who disdained religion and dismissed God. But he came after me. Now, to be honest, I never did actually interact with them again. The church banned all junior high lock-ins after that. It was bad. So, and never had the opportunity. But I was ready to, if God would have opened that door. How do we forgive? How do we, how do we seek peace in these difficult situations? We've got to have a changed heart. Ezekiel 36 speaks about what God wants to do. It talks about he will... Sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all, all your sins and uncleanness and I will cleanse you. And then it goes, says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He'll take away that heart and give us a new, that's what the gospel does. It gives us a new heart in how we treat and love one another. Instead of me closing in prayer, I, I want, I'm going to give you some time and I'm going to direct a little bit, but I, I want us to, to close in prayer for this message. And so for a minute, close your eyes. Imagine the God of the universe saying this to you. Hear this in your spirit as from him. God saying, I made you. I love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. With you, I am well pleased. And all your sins are forgiven. And you are made right and whole. And I'm delighted to spend eternity with you. Now, in light of that, pray about your relationships with people. And let's see what God will do. Let's spend some time in silent prayer.